Morning, church. I don't know about you, but I like to feel special. You like feeling special? Oh, yeah. yeah, I like feeling special. I was brought up in the generation that we were all special. And uh, we were so proud of how special that we were. I remember in sixth grade that my teacher made it known to us we were the class of 2000 and we were special. And I thought we were just so special for that and many other reasons. And I was just so excited about all of the different ways I could be special, you know, unique in a good way, right? Like unique in a good way. And we all like feeling special, but sometimes feeling special can actually lead to us comparing ourselves to other people. And we do this often in so many areas of our lives where our feeling special comes at a cost to someone else because we're comparing ourselves to what we have done, what we haven't done, maybe what we've accomplished and achieved. Maybe we even look at people that are in our same uh, demographic. We look at people who are roughly the same age as us, and we compare ourselves to how far along we are or how far behind we are to those that we think are successful or who others may look at as being special. And we will judge how far along we are, how special we are, based off of what someone else has or hasn't done. This can even happen in your own family, where you'll compare yourselves to your uh, siblings, where you'll compare yourself to maybe the other people in your neighborhood. I mean, that guy next door really needs to cut his grass, and he just doesn't understand how better my grass is than his. And because I cut it different ways and different times, and I understand how it needs to lay and how it needs to be you know, this long and how it needs to have this type of moisture, and you don't cut it these days, you do cut it these days. And if that guy would just figure it out, we might just be able to have a decent neighborhood here. But we do these types of things. And thank goodness we don't compare in the church. I mean, if we did that, there'd be a whole other mess we'd have to talk about. <clears throat> but it's just everything else, right? You know, we, we even do this with our spiritual walk, where we think because I've been walking with Jesus for X amount of years, I've taught this many types of classes, I've been in these types of positions, or I have, you know, uh, not lived my life this way, and you know, they're those people, God bless them, they've lived their life pretty rough, but they came and found Jesus too, and we think ourselves superior based off of what we have or we haven't done, and we'll classify ourselves into these types of caste systems where we feel better and that's so dangerous and anti-Christ and anti the message of the gospel. So how can we have a healthy view of ourselves and serve other people without feeling like we're better or feeling that we're super special? In James chapter 2, we see how James is continuing on this style of teaching that's called pearls of wisdom on a string. Remember, it seems very proverbial and axiom type principle driven where it seems like random popcorn type of fortune cookie-esque thoughts but actually it's very strategic to where all of these different thoughts actually come back around again and make that one pearl on that string connect to the next and the next and the next to where when you get all the way back to the beginning you go oh I get it now I understand what he's saying so this is the style that uh, that James wrote this letter in to the churches. And so keep that in mind as we read in James chapter 2. If you have your Bible this morning, let's kick things off. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. He says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly 
and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, eh, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Here we see James introducing this idea of God not being one who shows partiality that there is no class system in heaven. In other words, in God's eyes and from God's vantage point, there's no such thing as a first-class Christian and a second-class Christian. There's just simply those who are saved and those who are lost. Those who have put their faith and their trust in the precious blood of Christ, how he has given himself for us by taking our place, taking the punishment that we deserve. Therefore, by putting our faith and our trust in him, saving us from being disconnected from God by being a, a person who is classified as an enemy of God because of that great gulf of sin that's between us and God. Jesus made a way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. There are simply those who are saved, those who are lost. Not those who are saved, those who are really saved, those who are like the best at it, and then those that are just trying to, you know, I mean, like they're kind of saved, kind of, you know. No, they're saved and there's lost. And God doesn't show partiality. He's not saying, I really like this group over here, and I think this group is super special, and this group over here, eh, not so, I mean, they're okay, you know. How do we know what something is worth in our society, what, how do we attach worth to something? We, we give it a value by what it costs, and we can attribute cost to something that is of great value. That's why there are things in life that will make us scratch our heads with what people are willing to pay for those types of things or those experiences, but to that person, it's worth it because they're paying this exuberant cost of something that you're like, why on earth would someone pay that much money for you know, a silver dollar or something that you know, is a rare find? And they're like, it doesn't make sense to us why someone would pay that much, but it was worth it to them, and therefore now they've attributed value and worth to it and attached a cost to it and a value to it. How do we know what we're worth in the eyes of God, we can tell by what it costs to purchase us back from our sin. We all cost the same. We all cost the precious blood of Jesus that was spilled for you and for me. Amen, church? So therefore, in the eyes of God, we are worth the same because we all cost the same. And Jesus paid that price. So we were redeemed or bought back and we are now sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So there's no partiality in the kingdom. But we do this all the time where we begin to create these subgroups where we think that some people are better than others and we attach different criteria based on what makes us think that some people are better than others. It may be based on the type of house they live in, the neighborhood that they live in. 
It may be the type of job that they have, if they have a corner office, or you know, if they work in the basement, or if they work in certain industries that are more prestigious in our eyes, how they dress, how they may carry or conduct themselves, and we look and we go, oh wow, that person's successful, that person gets it, that person is just really impressive. And we do this when it comes to Christianity as well, where we don't even think oftentimes about discerning truth. We just look at someone's popularity and we go, oh, wow, that person amassed a large gathering. Or, oh, wow, that person pastors a large church. Or, oh, wow, that person has a bestseller on the New York Times list. And they must be an incredible person of God. Well, can I tell you that on the New York Times bestseller list that also uh, all sorts of heresy can be published as well? Oh, don't help me now when I'm preaching good. Just because you're popular doesn't mean you're right. Just because you're popular doesn't mean that you are properly handling the gospel. So don't follow someone just because of their popularity. Amen or oh me? You see, we often get deceived into these things because we get impressed. We get our eyes off of the truth and off of the gospel and off of Jesus and we begin to look at what man calls success. And God doesn't do that. God's not showing partiality. God's not saying, oh, wow, well, since that person has so many people following them on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, wow, they really must be special and I would be lucky to have them on my team. No, that's not how it works in the eyes of God. He's saying, why do you do this? Why are you showing partiality? James is chastising the church here. He's saying, you guys do something extremely hypocritical and out of step with the Christian faith. You do this thing where when a rich person comes to your church, you say, hey, just because you're rich, man, why don't you sit here in this good spot? Like, this is like the best spot, you know? It's where the music sounds the best. It's, you know, the most comfortable. It's right under the air conditioner vent. You know, it's really nice. Uh, you know, you can slip out real quick unnoticed. Uh, it, it's like the primo spot in our gathering. And then a poor person walks in and you're like, eh, yeah, could you like go over there? James said, why are you doing this? When someone comes to your assembly, you're treating people differently based on their appearance, based on whether they've got it all together, based on the fact that, oh, did you know the so-and-sos are going to this church now? Wow. And we get impressed by someone's name. We get impressed by the amount of money that someone has. And, and here James is saying, no, this is not Christian of you to do this. This is not in step with what God would have us to do because this is not how God treated us. God didn't say, oh, the so-and-sos are on my team now. Ooh, wow, oh boy, I'm doing really good. God doesn't base things on the outward appearance like man does. He looks at the heart. Thank you, that one person. I appreciate that answer. <clears throat> God looks at the heart. He does. He's not impressed by what's on the outside. You and I, we can get fooled by what's on the outside. I know a group of old retired guys who meet for coffee like every day in Arkansas. And the reason I know this is because I'm related to one of them and I've sat with these guys before many times. And if you were to walk into this coffee shop and see these seven or eight retired guys sitting there arguing who's going to pay for each of their dollar twenty-five cent coffees that they're sitting there drinking for three hours. 
And if you looked at the way they were dressed and how they came in, and if you listened to the type of conversation they were having, you would think, these poor old guys, I need to buy their coffee because they probably don't have a dime to their name. But can I tell you, every one of those guys sitting around that table are multimillionaires? Every one of them. And it blows me away if you look in the parking lot, if you see what they're driving. You wouldn't think that. If you saw how they were dressed, if you, if you listened to what they talk about, you would be like, there's no way these guys accumulated that much money. There's just no way. But every one of them sitting there are multimillionaires. And it's crazy because we would look at them and instantly make a snap judgment, make a snap call. And we wouldn't really know what's really going on behind the scenes. And we do this so many times when someone walks in and may impress us. Someone may have all these skills and abilities and, and they may have all these shiny gifts that mesmerize us. And we don't really look at what's going on underneath the surface. And then the person that comes in that may not look the part, that may not have it all together, you may never know what God has done in their lives or what they've come through or what they've walked through because we're so quick to make snap judgments. We, click, we quickly jump to conclusions and assumptions based on what someone is wearing, based on the color of their skin, based on the neighborhood they live in, and we create some sort of classification system that church does not exist in the gospel. There is no place for prejudice and partiality in the life of a Christ follower. You see, God shows no partiality in giving mercy. Aren't you glad of that? Aren't you really, really grateful that God didn't go, a lot of mercy for you, for you, not, not as much. No, God gave us all mercy, but here's the thing we need to realize as Christ followers. We have freely received this grace. We have freely received this mercy. We have freely received forgiveness. We have freely received being brought into right standing with God through Jesus. So it's not our job, nor our responsibility, nor is it our call to be able to decide who gets that same type of mercy and forgiveness and love and reconciliation. And so freely you've received, so freely give. A lot of times we have this idea in Christianity that the more I can tank up for myself, the better of a Christian that I will become. And so the pursuit begins to be driven by knowing more, experiencing more, uh, having these great encounters with God, learning all of these great truths about God. And we tank it up and we tank it up and we tank it up and we want to be in those environments and we want to be in those classes and we want to go to those conferences and we want to be in those worship centers and be in, in, in those types of atmospheres where we're just constantly just being filled up and filled up and filled up and filled up. And if it never goes anywhere, and if it never does anything, it's just like us going through the buffet line and then going and taking a nap on the couch. We just keep feeding ourselves and feeding ourselves and feeding ourselves. But the point of feeding ourselves is so we can go do something with it. You see, we have to take the things that God has done in us and is doing in us and is teaching us and actually apply it and use it. This was the problem in the early church and it's still a problem within the church today where they were facing this idea called Gnosticism and Gnosticism would teach that there are secret angelic 
levels of spirituality based on what one knows and what one has had the revelation of. And so people would pursue these secret, angelic levels of spirituality thinking they're climbing some sort of corporate ladder of spirituality and being closer to God and they're learning and having all these big ideas and all these big revelations and all these secret things that God is showing them and all these secret things being whispered to them by angels and they're thinking of themselves more spiritual because of what they simply know. And James makes a different argument. He talks about it is important for us to grow in knowing more about God, but it also matters a whole lot what you do. Amen, church? Amen. Let's read on a little bit more. Verse 8 is where we'll pick things back up. If you really fulfill the, the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy." Mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, partiality is the antithesis to the command that we have to love. You and I have a command to love one another. And the stark contrast of that is this idea of partiality. And true riches, true wealth, true success, true belonging, true mattering is having found grace and forgiveness and right standing with the creator of the universe, not having impressed a bunch of people and won the favor of people or won the approval of others, but instead the greatest success we could ever have is being welcomed into the family of God. Amen? There is nothing greater. There is no greater treasure. There is nothing more that matters in our lives and if we believe that, it should be evidenced by the way that we love. Because we are commanded to love, not to be partial in our day and age. If we have truly received the gospel, if we've truly received it, how we live should reflect God, should reflect his character, should reflect his values. And we're growing in this. The word that scripture uses for that is sanctification. I'm growing in sanctification where I'm, I'm learning to let go of who I was before Christ. And I'm learning how to submit my will to the will of the Father. And I'm learning how to obey and trust him throughout this process as I learn how to please God. Because scripture says in Hebrews eleven six that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And he's going to reward those who diligently seek him, who are diligent about seeking his will, who are diligent about pleasing him, who are diligent about living in step with what is going to bring God honor and glory, not the things that I'm going to be able to achieve and look at and go, man, I'm doing better than these folks over here, or I'm doing better than these people over here. No, it's not this comparative partial thing where we think God has his favorites and, you know, I'm it and you're not. That's not how this works. We need to understand that that same impartiality, that same love, 
that same mercy that he distributed and gave freely to us, we are commanded to give to one another. That's part of living life as a Christian. Amen? Amen. This is the mark of one who has received the gospel. And then he begins to talk about how that should look as we read further. Let's pick this back up in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now here we see this idea that if you really have faith, there's going to be evidence that you truly do have faith because faith is more than mental assent. Faith is more than simply speaking. Faith is more than simply saying, I believe. Because James says, even the demons believe and they shudder. So faith is more than just belief. Because some people will say this. They'll say, well, I believe in God. Well, what does that mean? Even the demons believe in God. Even the demons believe. So faith is something different than belief. It's not simply belief all on its own. It's where belief and the actions of my life are intertwined and I live like it's true. And I live like I am convinced that it is true. And you can see that I am convinced that it is true by the way that I act and the way that I continue to live my life. That's what faith is. It's those two intertwined. It would be like the difference between an orange tree and an apple tree is plainly known because of what? It's fruit. I can see one is different because one's going to make orange fruit and the other one's going to make apple fruit, right? But what if, just, just roll with me here, okay, we're going to go somewhere weird. <clears throat> what if you had these two trees side by side, an orange tree and an apple tree, and you put the apple tree sign in front of the orange tree and it said orange tree. And what if you put the apple tree sign in, in front of the orange tree? Is, did I just say that? You know what I'm saying. You put the opposite sign in front of the opposite tree. If you did that, you would only be able to be fooled for a little while. I'm not one of these guys that can look at a tree and automatically go, oh, I can tell by the way that the, the broadness of the leaf and the color of the flower and the blood. I don't know all that stuff. I can tell the difference between like a cedar tree and a pine tree because that's not hard. But I can't really tell the difference between like an apple tree and an orange tree. But if you swap the signs and the orange tree was in front of the apple tree and the apple tree sign was in front of the orange tree. If you, if you, if you put those apart from each other, 
You would only fool me for a little while because there would come a day, there would come a day where you would start to see fruit and one would have orange fruit. Now, what if, what if, okay, this is where it gets weird. What if trees could talk, okay? You remember like in Wizard of Oz, like what if trees could talk, right? And what if the apple tree said, I really want to be an orange tree. I'm an orange tree. Tell, I'm telling you, I've got the sign to prove it. It's right here. You see that orange tree? But then, boop, 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 started producing apples. You're like, mm-mm, no, you're an apple tree. Doesn't matter how bad you want to be, that orange tree, doesn't matter what the sign says, it, you're an apple tree, buddy, right? Because of the fruit it produces. In the same way, the Christian, we can decorate ourselves with all sorts of religious type of icons and Im imagery. We can put all sorts of the right things in our home. We can park our car in the right place on Sunday. We can say all the right things. We can go through all the motions. We can have the sign out in front of our house that says we are a Christian. But a Christian is not known by the sign out in front of their house, nor the bumper stickers on their car, nor the clothes that they wear that say I'm a Christian. It's by the fruit that your life produces. It's the things that you do. And James says, you say, I have faith, but man, I don't really see anything that's showing me that you really believe what you're saying. Because faith without works is dead. You're saying all the right things because you've learned all the right things to say. You see, being a Christian is not some sort of formula where you do step one, step two, step three, and boom, you're in the club and now just kind of coast through life and kick your feet up. It's all good from here. No, this is something where we put our faith and trust in Christ and our faith should be continually growing. So should our commitment to Christ. So should be our submission to Christ. So should be our obedience to Christ. So should be our love for Christ and our love for the things that Christ loves. Amen? Amen. And so I should love people more today than I did yesterday because Christ lives in me. I should have more mercy in my life towards other people than I did yesterday because Christ lives in me. Not because I'm so great, but because the greater one lives in me and he's changing me continually. I should be continually being made in that image of Christ by transforming and renewing my mind and my behavior should follow suit in a way that should please and glorify God. This should be happening continually in the life of a Christian. This is what James is trying to argue with the thought of the day that Gnosticism or angelic knowledge and secret levels of knowledge is the goal and all you have to do is just know more. And I just want to know more. He said, yeah, you can know more, but you know what? It's not just about knowing. It's not just about saying, I believe. It's about the fruit. What is the fruit of a believer? The fruit of the Spirit of God living on the inside of them. There is love, there's joy, there's peace, there's gentleness, there's faithfulness, there's kindness, there's self-control, amen? And that is not an exhaustive list in Galatians. There is fruit of the Spirit that should be evidenced in our lives showing that God is at work in us and that we truly have placed our faith and trust in Him and not just giving lip service and doing all the right things and going through the motions trying to convince someone that we are a Christian. No, what really is the telltale sign is the fruit. Mental assent is not enough to save us because it alone is not faith. It goes deeper than knowledge. It's to produce things in our lives that are evidenced of a heart transformation. That heart transformation is authenticated by good works. You cannot claim to be transformed and not lived transformed. You simply cannot do that. And when I embrace 
the gospel, when I embrace this message of the kingdom, it changes my behaviors and it changes my values because it changes my source. It changes the life that I'm living into where now I'm beginning to see myself as Christ sees me. Folks, good works from a transformed heart are going to be impartial to other people. So when I've received freely, I can freely give. When I have been shown mercy without measure, I can give mercy. And that's easy for us to say when people do things we like, right? I can be really nice to someone who's been nice to me. I can be very loving. If you, you love me, man, I'm going to love you back. And that's easy for me to do. That's not hard. Hey, even those that don't have Christ understand that. Do good to me, I'll do good to you. But that's not how the command goes. It doesn't say, you know, do good as long as people do good to you. <laughs> no, Jesus told us to even love our enemies. That's, that's hard. To love those who despitefully use us. You ever been used before by someone? That stinks, doesn't it? You ever been stabbed in the back before, lied about? That stinks. That's no fun. Love those people. Ooh, mm, I don't like that. Yeah, love people who aren't Americans. Ooh, that can be challenging too because there's some people in this world that want to see Americans dead. They don't like us just simply because we're Americans and we're breathing air. There's people that have great prejudice against us simply because of that. Can you love those people? Ooh, I can't do it in my own strength because I'm not that hot, right? <laughs> Somebody hurts me, hurts people that I love, hurts people I care about. Oh, man, oh, I wrestle with that. So I need the love of God shed abroad in my heart to help position me to be able to do that because I can't do that on my own. I need that same kind of love that was shown to me. And I need to remind myself of the gospel to be able to be a dispenser of that gospel to other people because I freely received it, man, and I'm obligated to freely give it. And sometimes I have to step out in faith, not seeing the end result and not seeing that person love me because I loved them back, not seeing that person forgive me because I went ahead and forgave them, not see that person be nice to me because I was nice to them. If that's how it worked, it would be easy to forgive and be nice to others and love other people, right? If all I had to do was go and tell someone, you know what? That thing that happened between us, oh man, it's really been weighing on my heart. And I just want to ask your forgiveness for that. And I just want to really reconcile. And they're like, oh, you know, me too. Oh, wow, I just love you so much. If that's how it went, forgiveness would not be a hard thing at all. If that was like the guaranteed outcome. But have you ever went to someone and have you ever said, hey, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong, blah, blah, blah. And then you're like, and, and, and they're like, I'm sorry you felt that way. Ooh. Oh, I had somebody tell me that one time. I got like re-offended when they said that. I thought I was over it, and I'm like, oh, nope, instantly re-offended. I'm sorry you felt that way. That's not even like a real apology, right? That's like so manipulative, you know. I, I, I felt so angry about that. I'll never forget that because it was just one of those things that, that my reaction was like, wow, I instantly got re-offended when that person said that. I'm sorry that you felt that way because you and I, man, we don't have the guarantee of someone responding the way we want to. We can't control all of those outcomes. So what do we do when we're doing things and it seems one-sided? Well, we're to do those things because we've been shown that same type of mercy and love and grace, and we're doing it as unto the Lord, not because we get a guaranteed response. Amen? 
That means when I show up at work and the boss makes it harder on my job because I'm, I'm a Christian and they like to poke fun at me or they like to make things more difficult on me, that means I do my job as unto the Lord. That doesn't give me permission to slack and be a part of bashing the boss, right? Actually, it's going to make me do a better job. That's tough. That's hard. But that's real. When you go to the family reunion and you know you're the only one who's a believer that shows up, or maybe everyone else professes to be believers, but there's no fruit there, and, and, and you've got to wrestle with not being judgmental in those environments. Man, that's hard, isn't it? Oh, man, because I just want to judge you because I'm so much better than all of you. Oh, but not really. But not really. I'm not. And i got to remember that because I'll walk into that situation feeling like I'm superior and feeling like the rest of them are idiots. And, oh, that's hard. It's hard because you want to get judgmental. You want to get haughty. You want to get prideful. And the enemy loves to try to find those little cracks and sneak in and get you to believe those things and whisper in your ear and let those things take root in your heart. And you got to remember that the same Jesus that died for you that bought you the uh, price for your salvation is the same one that bought the price for their salvation. And the same love and mercy that you, show, that you were shown you need to show. Oh man, that's not easy. But I'm not supposed to be impartial. I, I need your help to be able to do this, Jesus, because I want to be a person who shows good works that are evidenced in the way that I treat other people. And the way that I'm not preferring someone because they do all the things I like or they make me feel special. In that uh, earlier text that we read where James was talking about the rich people who would you know, take you to court and all of that stuff, he said, weren't the rich people the ones who took you to court? Uh, he's actually giving a nod to something that happened in the context of their day. Historically, there was a Galilean war that broke out in A.D. 66 and it lasted all the way to A.D. 70 and the war was fueled by the oppression that the rich people had made the lives of the poor people just miserable because they would take them to court and use loopholes in the court system to take their property and to take their belongings and things like that. And they were causing all sorts of oppression on the poor people because the court system of the day allowed for these loopholes for them to basically take things from other people. And they were exploiting this and taking advantage of this and making the poor people's lives miserable. And that's where James says, when they walk in, like you're, 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 you're treating them a certain way just because they're wealthy, but they, they, they did all these things. They treated you so, so poorly and, and you're, 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 you're so uh, happy to be associated with them. And he's saying, and then you're taking a poor person and you're like casting them out basically or making them feel less than. That's not the way that a person who's been transformed by the gospel should live. We are a person who has been transformed by the gospel and we should display good works, not just lip service and not just honoring people that we think will make us feel special. No, I'm not special because of the people I'm associated with. The only thing that makes me special is the fact that Jesus Christ died for me and I can now be called a son or a daughter of God. Amen? Amen. And I need to remember that. I need to anchor myself in that. Because, man, I'm going to be tempted to stray from that. I'm going to be tempted to get off path with that. And I need to be reminded of the gospel and the great price that was paid for me. So I want you to remember this, church. There are no second-class Christians. There are no second-class Christians. There aren't second-class people that God loves uh, less than those that are the first-class Christians. God doesn't love 
pastors and evangelists and missionaries and people who are on stages. He doesn't love them more than other people. God doesn't love those who are best-selling authors more than he loves you. It's not like they have gold stars by their name or special treatment in the eyes of God or they somehow are just these superstars. No, that God's not impressed because he's like, I made you, <laughs> you know, and I gave you all those things and God's not impressed. He, he's not caught off guard or surprised by us. No, he, he knows the intents of our heart. He knows everything about us. And he sent his son to die for all of us because he paid the same price for all of us. So when you serve other people, I want you to remember this. You're not reaching down because you're better than those people. Sometimes it's hard to get that in our heads and in our hearts. Have you ever been on a mission trip before or been a part of a service project before? I know a lot of you have here at BCC because our church does a lot of those types of things and I think that's wonderful. But it's hard when you're in those situations sometimes when you're helping someone else. It's, there's this internal war that's going on that you gotta fight, that you gotta remind yourself, I'm not better than these people. I'm not reaching down. Actually, I should be reaching out. It's more of a horizontal thing where I'm reaching out to other men and women that God loves, that Jesus died for, not that I'm reaching down because I'm better and I wanna show you how you can be better like me. No, I'm reaching out and I'm wanting to love people and it can't be from a haughty position. It can't be from an arrogant position and man, that can be tough. I've been on mission trips all over the world and as I've gone to these foreign countries where I've seen great poverty, man, I got to wrestle with, wow, that, that, there's inconveniences, there's things I don't like that, you know, I'm subjected to, especially when you're in like 115 degree heat, you know, and, and there's no air conditioner inside and you're just like, I'm not better than them because I have an air conditioner. I'm not better than them because my society has more modern advantages that we get to use or because i have a car or how I'm not better that those things don't make me better I've got to remind myself of that I just want to reach out to them and give them Jesus not reach down because I feel superior not because here I am the great white pope to come and save you nope instead it's me reaching out to save people because Christ died for their sin and he died for your sin amen church you see, we're not just containers. We're conduits where the love of God flows in us and then flows out of us. It's bigger than you and I. We must evaluate our hearts and we must repent where necessary. You and I must repent where necessary for our arrogance, for viewing ourselves as better than other people, for asking for the heart of God and a perspective that's humble, that will depend on God and that we'll love others with the same love that's been shown to us. And that requires humility. That requires me to say, Lord, help me to get off my high horse. Help me to think I'm better than because of whatever reason. Fill in whatever blank you want to fill in. And I've, and I've got to remind myself that I need Jesus and so do these people that God has called me to serve. And that no matter who it may be, no matter if they are an affluent person who's wealthy or whether they're a poor person, 
who's down and out and who may have a bad reputation that maybe has been following them around and they're just looking for somebody to love them and someone to show them mercy. Lord, help me not to be partial. Help me to be humble. So can we pray today that God will help us grow in that? So Lord, help us all as we see ourselves in light of the cross of Calvary, as we see ourselves in light of the great price that was paid for us, that we could be humbled, that we could remind ourselves of our need for a savior and remind ourselves that you require faith to please you, faith that says, you are good, Lord, and I need you. Faith that says, Jesus, you are the only way, the truth, and the life. Faith that says, Lord, I want to do for you, God, and show mercy to others as you have done for me and shown mercy. So help me to love with a sacrificial love. Help me to care. Help me, Lord, to be driven with compassion for those who need Jesus and those who are hurting and struggling. Help us to have our faith authenticated, Lord, by the works that we do. And may they testify to Christ and may they bring glory to you and you alone, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.